0: Michelle Donnelly, and this is the Christian Single Moms Podcast. I believe that every single mom can discover a life of peace, power, and purpose, and that you can do it right through the things that God is carrying you through in your season as a single mom. Here we talk about all of the things that matter to a single mom, but most of all, I hope you found a place where you feel like you. Belong. Let's get started. I'm so glad you're able to join me for this episode. I am your host, Michelle Donnelly. Today's episode revolves around safety in trauma recovery and specifically in recovering from an abusive relationship. I'm joined in this conversation by author and speaker Sarah McDougall. Sarah leads an abuse recovery ministry called Wilderness to Wild. And in this conversation, Sarah tells us more about the stages of recovery, and we go into detail into one of those stages, which is safety. We talk about how to experience safety, how to get to safety, and then how to move forward in your healing journey. I know a lot of us deal regularly with feelings we'd rather not have, feelings like loneliness, anxiety, rejection, anger and depression. The ways we've learned to cope with these emotions and with our triggers can help us survive, but they can also eventually keep us stuck in patterns that cause us to feel overwhelmed and threaten our well-being and our relationships, especially when it comes to our kids. Over at plusoneparents.org/quiz, you can take the What's Your Stress Style Quiz and learn more about how your coping strategies might actually be holding you back but how you can also make changes that will get you moving forward. That quiz again is at plusoneparents.org slash quiz. In abuse recovery, safety can be somewhat elusive because though we might actually be physically safe, we might not be experiencing that same safety in our emotions. And so understanding the difference between actual safety and perceived safety can help us to make some progress in places where we might feel stuck. Here is my conversation with Sarah McDougal. Sarah, I am excited to have you with me today. Welcome to
1: the podcast. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I'm excited. We were already getting to preaching there just before we got started. So yes, we do a little prep,
0: a little getting to know you at the beginning. And we just kind of like, we said, oh man, we need to stop and actually start the episode right here. So <laughs> exactly. I'm excited though, Sarah, this is going to be, um, I mean, just dig into some really important parts of our recovery journey. And you have in your work identified four stages of recovery mm-hmm. And that first one is safety. And I really would love to hone in on safety in our conversation because as we recover, I think we find this issue of safety coming up again and again and again. And it has to do often with whether or not we are actually safe and whether or not we can perceive that we are safe and Mm -hmm. finding out the reality for us is a journey in and of itself. And so I think this issue of safety comes up over and over again. But in that, it's also recognizing we were unsafe. Maybe if we were in a situation, now we're out, we were unsafe and we had some strategies and some things that we did to survive that helped us to get through that. So as we start out, would you help us to first understand, you know, when we are truly unsafe, what those survival strategies look like and what their role is, in the season where we are really fighting for our lives.
1: Absolutely. This is such an incredible and important aspect to consider because so often we don't come to terms with how unsafe we have been simply because we needed to convince ourselves that it was all okay or that it was going to be okay in order to survive. So when we are living in abuse, we tend to develop... um, unhealthy coping skills that keep us alive. And while those coping skills serve a purpose within the abuse, once we are out of the abuse and we have found safety and we're moving into stability, which is the second stage, we we have to recognize the need to unlearn those coping mechanisms. When we are living, now I'm I'm not a neuroscientist, I'm not a psychiatrist, but studying the brain is kind of a, a fascination for me, especially how trauma affects the brain. And one of the things that I have realized is that when we are living in 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 a survival fear driven mode, we're living in what neuroscience would call amygdala hijack. And the amygdala is this little two pronged part in the middle of our brain. They call it middle brain. And when you're when you're making in rational, intellectual, logically informed decisions you're operating in the frontal lobe, which is where you make those choices. The amygdala is where our our brain stores emotional and fear responses. and It stores positive responses too, but but sometimes the the negative fear response in the amygdala, uh, those conditionings become very, very strong, especially if we've grown up or have lived for a season of time feeling unsafe. Even if we tried to convince ourselves that we were safe, we can have really huge reactions to things that trigger that feeling of lack of safety, even if we never called it danger. So one of the things that we have to recognize, and we're going to come back to this a little later, is that it's very, very important to develop a a radical, incredibly transparent relationship with the truth in order to heal as we are seeking safety. But but we'll get into that a little bit further on. Um, this whole thing with the amygdala, when we are living in amygdala hijack, it means that that fear center of the brain has taken over. And a lot of times... The, the the symptoms that come from this include feeling like we're in survival overdrive, feeling like we have um, brain fog, confusion, fatigue, insomnia, nightmares, restlessness, autoimmune issues that start cropping up. You might even just get like weird skin rashes or hives or mood swings that are not explained by your normal circumstances. Some women get incredibly serious conditions like cancer. I'm a cancer survivor after trauma. Um, You you can spend a whole lot of your life feeling crazy and self-doubting and living in this unsafe environment is kind of like gradually breathing more and more poison air. You start and you don't notice anything's wrong with the air. But by the time you begin to realize something is wrong, you've breathed so much of the poison air that your brain isn't clear enough to be able to, to like sort out all of the potential reasons for why. And because the poison doesn't have an odor to it, you're not thinking, oh, I smell something burning. The smoke alarm's going off. Uh, we should, you know, we need to stop the smoke. It, it isn't. It isn't noticeable like that many times. It's this sneaky thing that kind of creeps up on you. And by the time you're at the point of recognizing the profound lack of safety, you're already living in a fog. And then you have to battle to overcome the fog in order to be able to come out of fear brain middle brain that amygdala hijack in order to be able to make rational conscious frontal lobe kind of decisions it sounds when we put it like that almost impossible to sort out and overcome but i see women who begin to come to terms with the truth walking through this journey and getting to the other side every day
0: mm, that is so i'm so glad you wrapped that part of of this answer with that because I think when you're first coming out of this, it does feel that way and it is massively confusing and you become terrified because you can't even trust your own instincts. You can't trust your own thoughts. You can't trust those things that God has put inside of us to help Mm -hmm. us navigate our relationships and our environments and all those kinds of things. And it truly is possible. However, I know from my experience and from studying and all those kinds of things, you do have to make some very specific changes in order to start moving towards your ability to start perceiving correctly. And I think that's that that space right there, why the confusion is so difficult because you don't actually know whether you're safe or not. And so then when you're being brought perhaps into community or support group or something like that, you may be suspicious of people who are being kind to you and want to help you because you're afraid of being hurt again and taken advantage of again. And it's very difficult for us to know which end is up. So when it comes to... Yes. The ability for us to start experiencing safety, you know, what does it look like to actually need to get safe, but then to also feel safe?
1: Well, those are definitely two different things. And they, they actually involve more than that first stage Mm -hmm. of safety. Mm -hmm. Um, But before I go into that, I want to address something you just said, and you said something about, um, going to those who could help you either church or group or community, um, And then I think there's another profile of what happens that we also have to to consider. And that is that very often women begin to feel that something is off. They wouldn't call it abuse. They wouldn't call it um, domestic violence. They, They don't have the words for it. They can't articulate it clearly. But when they do go looking for help from church or groups or friends or community, they're told that nothing is wrong. This is just the way things are, and they need to make themselves better in order to be less abused. So, that can contribute to that kind of brain fog and that sense of self doubt and gaslighting yourself because others are gaslighting you. And by mm-hmm. gaslighting, I mean crazy making, denying reality. Uh, maybe, maybe all your Listeners already know the term. Gasoline. No, I think that definition is
0: perfect. Though it's it's basically your reality being completely just cast aside, rejected, denied. Right. That's the essence of really what it is.
1: So, when we are looking at the um, the way to develop beyond actual safety into resting in that perceived safety where we actually feel safe, that actually leads us into the second stage of healing. Uh, There are four stages, which you mentioned at the beginning, but we haven't outlined them yet. So the first stage is safety. The second is stability. The third is strength. And the fourth, I like to call Shiro. So when you're beginning to get safe, that's just moving out of danger Into safety. When you've been safe for a while, long enough for things to begin to feel safe, that's when you are entering stability. And that takes time. Now, when you have been safe for a while, and you've begun to feel safe, and things are staying that way. There is now a baseline of safety that you can kind of lean into. There may be triggers where it's like, oh my goodness, ah," but you can come back to safety. Then after a season of that, you move into strength. The thing is, very often in church, in spiritual environments, those who are in leadership those who are the abuser, often want to push the victim, the survivor, into reconciliation and forgiveness. Like, come on, you need to be okay with this. You need to let it go. You need to just, come on. And the the, the challenge with that, that most of these individuals do not understand is that forgiveness comes when you have strength. It requires strength to be able to process what was done to take inventory of what you have lost, to grieve what was taken away from you by the situation, and to decide how you want to deal with the emotional and spiritual and psychological impact of that. You don't get to do that when you're back here at safety and stability, developing these two. So, if someone is pushing you to, you know, to be okay with it, to move on, to 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 go back to. Um, to, to reconcile, to forgive, to let it go, stop talking about the past and 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 you're not safe yet and you're not stable yet and you haven't reached the place to do that yet, they're actually potentially contributing to a secondary double abuse, we call it, mm-hmm. um, because they're pushing you to do something that that has to be done from a place of strength. And the fourth stage is is I call it Shiro because that's when she becomes a hero, mm-hmm. when she is able to turn around and to begin to reach back to others in some level. Now, one of the things that you were that we were talking about is this whole beginning to experience safety and the relationship that that requires with truth. Now, this is a huge, huge thing. When we start talking about safety and our relationship with the truth, we have to be really, really honest with ourselves because in general, when we are living in abuse and you're going to choke and be like, what? No, it doesn't. No, I'm not. But abuse makes us liars. Hmm. Every woman who has lived in abuse has been a liar even the most truthful woman, the most conscientious woman out there. I am not saying this for victim shaming. I'm not Mm -hmm. saying that this, well, you contributed to your abuse. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that the nature of abuse is that in order to survive, we tell ourselves it's okay.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And that's a lie. Mm
0: -hmm. It is not
1: okay. We tell ourselves they'll get better We tell ourselves this was the last time. We tell ourselves he'll keep his promise this time. We tell others, you go to church on the weekends and they're like, how you doing? We're great, we're fine. So every time you have smiled at your pastor and told him things were fine, every time you have hidden the truth from a friend or a loving relative who is wondering because their radar is just going off, you have felt that the only way to survive was to deny your relationship with the truth. And I am not saying that, again, as a way to condemn your desire to survive. Because I lived for years doing the same. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Putting the perfect pictures on Facebook or Instagram, Mm -hmm. putting the, the happy... Perfectly groomed, big smile image out when I was out in public, refusing to ever say anything negative, even to seek help, because I didn't want to be that wife. So, all of these things are like, you know, that when you have a conscientious, generally truthful, good hearted abuse victim, all of the lies. Are from a place of a place of good hearted desire to do the right thing, Mm -hmm. to stand by your man, to not make waves, to be a peacemaker. And so we tell ourselves all of these scriptural ideas when um, Jesus is actually like, we should flip tables on this situation. Mm
0: -hmm, That's so true. (laughs) You know, and and I think that that's one of the things that where the Bible is so extremely clear that God is not okay with abuse Mm -hmm. and that we are to call it out. We are to move ourselves away from it. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, that's just the thing though. It's like, if we spend more time knowing our Jesus and we spend more time knowing how much he wanted us to cling to the truth, that that's a place where we're able to gain some of the strength of what you're talking about. But it yes. is these well-meaning, polite lies that come mm-hmm. up from a culture, not necessarily yes. even from the word, the truth itself, but from the culture of right. church or Christianity that really does not capture the essence of what the truth actually is.
1: Exactly. And Jesus, I can't think of one time in scripture where Jesus or the apostles ever told someone that things were just okay mm-hmm. when they weren't. Mm-hmm. He was more along the lines of, y'all are like rotting sepulchers whitewashed full of dead men's bones. Yeah. He, he didn't say pretty <laughs> things to make rotten filth feel better.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: He didn't say glamorous things to make liars not get exposed. He didn't say comforting things to make exploitative sex offenders not feel uncomfortable. hmm Jesus didn't do that. And so we have this idea of loyalty that covers the sin of others. Now, I have absolutely no judgment, and I am not trying to encourage judgment to any of us, to anyone listening, where you have had to go along to stay alive. You know, in the past, we've, we've had high-profile cases like Josh Duggar getting convicted guilty and people have gone, I mean, the internet has just lost their minds about why his wife is standing beside him. And they simply don't understand that when you have a systemic infrastructure of abuse, a wife is dealing with her own horror, her own brainwashing, her own conditioning, her own sense of loyalty, but also that subconscious understanding, like, what if he didn't get the guilty verdict Mm -hmm. and she stood up against him and then he comes home to her? There Mm -hmm. will be hell to pay. Mm -hmm. And so that survival instinct to protect oneself and to protect one's children is very, very strong. I am not condemning anyone who has survived. I'm talking about when we are out and we are wanting to heal. And the first step toward recognizing that you feel safe has to be including the process of coming to terms with actual truth. Mm -hmm. Because we can only get truly physically safe when we stop lying to ourselves that we are not in danger. Mm. That means things like Johns Hopkins, uh, domestic violence, like the danger and lethality assessment that was developed by Dr. Jacqueline Campbell. I can't tell you how many times I have had women come and they have given me this justification and that one and this one, and then kind of tried to diminish it. And there's shame, there's fear, there's guilt, there's questioning, there's gaslighting, self-doubt, confusion, brain fog. And as i'm hearing these things i'm recognizing she is in incredible danger and she needs a concrete tool that can give her a data driven evidence based assessment of just how much danger she is in because her body feels it her body is reacting to the trauma her body is telling her things are not okay but In her mind, the coping skill, the coping mechanism is to try to make it not as big as it is because if you truly acknowledge how big and how bad the situation is, how can you go to sleep with your head on the pillow next to his every night and stay sane? And then there comes a time when you have to make a decision for yourself. Am I going to continue to accept this as my reality or am I going to seek something safer? And when you're at that point looking for actual safety, one of the first steps is to, to stop downplaying it and to be open to concrete evidence based data that tells you the truth. What kind of danger level are you in? Here's the truth. Here are facts. So when we are willing to stop deceiving ourselves by minimizing things, when we're willing to stop participating in covering for the sins of others, and we're, we're not willing to keep on pretending like it's okay, when we're determined that we are going to be honest all the way around, we begin taking steps toward opening the door for God to tell us who we are according to Him. Mm-hmm. Not what your abuser has told you about yourself, not, and, and I'm shifting gears here from physical mm-hmm. safety to perceived safety mm-hmm. and to perceived confidence. Mm-hmm. Because once we are in a position where we are telling ourselves the truth, then we are also in a position where we can listen to God's truth. Mm-hmm. And very likely, if you have been dealing with psychological, emotional, verbal gaslighting and abuse, You have not been told the truth about yourself, about your value, about your intelligence, about your worth. And when we begin to have this radical relationship with the truth, we begin to be able to listen to God about how incredibly valuable and loved we are. And that is a huge step in healing.
0: Mm, I think that is so poignant. That we cannot understand truth as far as God's truth and who he says we are and who he says he is if we are still Mm -hmm. underneath those lies. And I think what you're describing here is so critical, just in so many facets. But one that also came to my mind while you were speaking was the sense that if we are minimizing, as you said, and basically exchanging truth for this watered down version or if we're giving some excuses or, you know, and a lot of times we don't even recognize maybe that we're doing this, you know, this is a way that we have Mm -hmm. just coped. Right. But we can't really set appropriate boundaries with an abuser or with an unhealthy, healthy person of any kind. If we don't first accurately assess what is going on, where they are, where we are and where we need to be. So when we think about safety, when you still have to interact with this person who's abused you, when you still have to have drop-off exchanges with your children, when you still have to negotiate various things when it comes to who's going to take them tonight or who's going to pay for what and these kinds of things. If we are not telling ourselves the truth about what this person has done to us, who we are and whether or not we should accept that, then we're likely to start to continue to have weak boundaries so that we are opening ourselves up to continue to actually be somewhat still unsafe. But that then by us knowing the truth, we're able to say, this is where I'm at. This is what's okay with me. This is what's not okay with me. And it's okay for me to also stand up for myself because I am a daughter of the king and he has made me unique and beautiful and gifted and that it is right for me to stand up for myself. In whatever the instance might be. But we have to be able to be bedrocked in truth in order for us to be able to do that. So if we are actually in these situations that still touch that unsafe boundary, we actually have the ability to stay safe and to experience God's power in us and to walk in that power, though that situation may not be ideal.
1: Absolutely. And and a lot of it also over time, moving from stability into strength, is gaining the ability to maintain objective perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas at the very beginning of your journey in the early stages of starting life over as a single parent, things like those child exchanges and other things, they can knock you flat. Mm-hmm. They can put you in a fetal position. If you, if you hear someone's voice or have the phone ring, or you get that text message that pops up and you know, it's that person, mm-hmm. or you hear news or something scrolls across your social media feeds. And all of a sudden your hands are shaking and you're sweating and your stomach is hurting and you feel like you need to be diarrhea or whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. like there's, these are those things where the body is telling you you're not safe, where, where where you have signs, tangible signs that that tell you just how bad the situation was. Mm -hmm. The intensity of those reactions often gets much worse after you're out because when you're not breathing poison air anymore, if someone sets off a poison air bomb in a room that you're in, and all of a sudden it hits you, you're like, whoa, Mm -hmm. like that was an just a slap in the face with that brain fog or that panic attack because you're not living with the adrenaline and the hypervigilance all the time. Mm-hmm. So then our, our physical reactions, those physiological things can get much more intense when we're re exposed to it. And, and that can create some complex trauma if you're having to deal with that roller coaster of things over and over again. So it's super important to have strategies. For self care, for coping, for healing, and to have one or two good people where when you start to like spin out of control, you can call them, you can talk to them, and they're like, hey, 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 you're not there anymore. It's you are safe physically. You may not feel safe right now, but let me help you parse out fear from truth. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a clear mind. And uh, I, I was just talking to my 40 days of prayer group the other day about how this is so cool when we look at the amygdala hijack idea, because God was really saying, I want you to live with clear thinking and a sense of power over your decisions mm-hmm. because you know you are loved. Mm-hmm. Love, power, clear mind, not fear. Fear is the opposite of love. Fear is the opposite of being powerful and uncontrollable for yourself. Fear is the opposite of a sound mind because when you are operating in fear, you are definitely not thinking clearly. And yeah, it's just so crucial. Now, I want to give a quick tip because it's a single mom's podcast, right? So this isn't something that just mamas worry about. This is something that affects kids too. Yeah. And very, very often in these kinds of situations, you may be gag ordered effectively, if not actually, mm-hmm. because you're not allowed to tell your kids the truth. You're not allowed to let your kids know everything that's going on. They're too young or there's, you know, it, it could get you in big trouble with court or whatever. Um, and, and, so when you're dealing with that, one of the questions that at, at WILD, my, my organization, we call it Trauma Mamas. So when we have Trauma Mamas who are dealing with this, one of our Trauma Mama tips is to play a truth game. And truth game is something it does not need to mention the traumatic situation. It's simply laying a foundation to help your children trust their instincts And their own intuition and good judgment. And it goes something like this. Okay, Michelle, the background behind you is bright green. And you say, No, it's not. Yeah. I know the truth. It's dark gray. Mm -hmm. And then you get to say something. Sarah, your sweater is blue. And I say, Nah. I know the truth. It's red. I can see it with my own eyes. Mm -hmm. And you can play this game going down the road. You can play this game with preschoolers who are scooped up on your lap. You can play this game with 12-year-olds while they're helping you with dishes in the kitchen. And the whole purpose of it is to strengthen your kid's ability and your own that when someone tells you something that would make you believe that your eyes, your ears, your nose, your senses are deceiving you, mm. you have the right to say, no, it's not. I know the truth. I know what I heard. I know what I saw. I know what I feel. This is the truth. Mm. And it's now it's possible to take it too far where you're like, no, no, and, and to get combative about it, that's not the point. Now if you have if you have really highly opinionated children like mine <laughs> um, and, and and my kids are also um, on the autism spectrum and um, they have uh, very, very concrete ways of thinking. So sometimes mm-hmm. we have to do other games to help understand the nuances behind things sure, as well. Yeah. <laughs> but but in general, whether it's for trauma mamas or for our kids, We're always looking to provide tangible, non-confrontational ways to teach our children and to practice ourselves, to trust our instincts, to believe the truth, and to be impervious to emotional and psychological lack of safety that is perpetrated by someone else trying to control us. And that's a way to become fearless and free, right? Mm-hmm. because you are not controllable by someone else's lies. I don't mean you are out of control. I mean, you are uncontrollable. Mm-hmm. And my friends over at Psalm 82 initiative, I don't know if you've ever had them on your podcast, but they're no, but amazing. Them, yeah. Um, yeah. They, they have uh, this amazing coin for graduates of their program. And on the back side of it, it says fearless, free and uncontrollable. Mm-hmm. And that's the goal. Fearless because of God's love, mm-hmm. free because of the truth, and uncontrollable by anyone but my conscience, which is surrendered to God.
0: Right. That's amazing. I think this is really critical, what you're saying, too, because this thing does take practice. Being able to stand in the truth and assert the truth, especially in the face of being questioned. Many of us have been mm-hmm. conditioned, and not even maybe just from a, an abusive relationship as an adult, but potentially from the way we were raised as children or things that we encountered in our Mm -hmm. earliest years, we have been conditioned to deny our reality. We've been conditioned to accept other people's Mm -hmm. definitions of reality or of ourselves or of the truth. And I think it's a fun, playful way though, to even just teach Without getting, as you said, into the nitty gritty of any particular circumstance, but to teach, know mm-hmm. it is okay for you to speak up when truth is being questioned in your face. And it's just exactly. that, that skill set of saying... Even though we're doing it as a game, now it's a skill set that I can draw upon that when it comes and whether it comes from a parent or whether it comes from a kid on the playground or any of those kinds of things, that it be something that I am used to standing up for myself and saying, nope,
1: Mm -hmm. this is the truth.
0: I'm not going to take your version. Thank you very much.
1: (laughs) Exactly. You do not get to rewrite the truth. And having those kind of catchphrases like, nope, you don't get to rewrite the truth. I know what I saw. Mm. Nope. You don't get to tell me that my feelings aren't valid. I know how I feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know These kind of things can be priceless. How much different would all of us have been able to live through, say, our teen years if someone had told us that we didn't have to accept false versions of the actual truth in order to fit in or be mm-hmm. cool or get along or make a grade or mm-hmm. any of those things. Yeah. Yeah. Get a date, you know. Yeah.
0: There are three words every abuse survivor must hear. God hates abuse. Plus One Parents has released a devotional for abuse survivors called Safe Haven, a devotional for the abused and abandoned. Safe Haven is a biblically-based guide to abuse, giving you the tools that you need to identify it, respond to it, and heal from it. Safe Haven is now available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook formats, and you can locate a link to purchase your copy down in the show notes. Sarah, you pointed to something earlier that I wanted to go back to, and it was the sense that when we feel safe, that actually that might be the point when things start falling apart. Can you talk a little bit more about why once we actually are, are gaining our footing, that might be the time where we start feeling the most crazy?
1: Yes, absolutely. So let this goes back to that recognition that, um, that very often when we are living in abuse, we are living in hypervigilance. We are constantly very aware of our surroundings. If you're living, let's just take kind of a more extreme example. If you're living in a home where when the kids go to bed, your spouse will rape you. And you are always trying to find ways to fall asleep in the other room or to sneak down to the basement to take care of the laundry until after he's asleep or to get um, into the shower and make sure the door is locked without anyone coming in to join you. Or where you know that if you do something a certain way, this other very traumatic thing is going to follow. And that could also be financially or sexually or violently or whatever. When you're living like that, you're living in a state that I tend to call waffle. Now, I don't know if you've seen my waffle and pancake analogy, but um, let me explain it a little bit because I love word pictures. I think that me they too. get us farther because yeah. it's something we can wrap our mind around. There's something familiar. And I can come back to that. Later, when something stands out to me, so there these these two situations are like uh, there or environments are like a waffle and a pancake. We start out we're living in abuse, like a waffle, and very often uh, when I'm working with women, coaching clients or crisis cases where they are just trying to get to the point of safety to get out, they're they're not out yet. They're not really in healing yet. They're just, they're strategizing. They're making an exit plan. They're working on their safety plan. They're trying to get a job. They're trying to set up a bank account. They're trying to get a burner phone. Like Whatever it is, if they're living in danger and working on the exit process, it will come down to the end of the game. And I use the term game not at all lightly, Um, but the end of the process, the end of the exit plan. And So often they'll say, I'm just numb. I don't feel anything. And I'm like, oh, honey, it's Mm. just, it's all right. Just hang on. Mm -hmm. The feelings will come and it'll be like a tsunami, and you won't be able to know what to do with them. And we'll get there. We'll cross that bridge when we get there. But right now, you're a waffle. And waffles, when you take them and you pour syrup, on the waffle. Now you can put a big old puddle on, but I was a bit OCD as a kid. So I would take that and I would yeah, like drip too. it. And I didn't want it to just to be full, like just the right amount. Yes. yes. And and no, no little pools going over That's or drips right. on top on the little walls between them. Every little compartment needed to be like its own little portion of the beehive with its own little amount of syrup or honey or whatever in it. And I liked it. I did not like it when my parents went Mm -hmm. and just poured it all on the top. I wanted it to be even. And if there was like one that got missed, that bothered me. And so I had like in your waffle, you have all these little walls, uh, these little boxes, right. Mm -hmm. And they separate everything. And this goes back to those coping mechanisms I was talking about that keep you alive. They keep you sane. They keep you focused on survival. And that's good because in survival, your brain shuts down all the stuff you don't need to survive. Mm-hmm. It's how God created us. It's a good thing. Yeah. It's a terrible way to live long-term. Yeah, It will kill you long-term, but it's how you are able to get through the really traumatic seasons. So your brain just shuts down all the stuff with the body and the emotions and the extra feelings and everything. And you're living on survival overdrive. You may not really feel like you need a lot of sleep. You're just go, 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 go. You wake up at four o'clock in the morning, you get some stuff done. I mean, I I remember when I first became a single mom until I'd lost 25 pounds, my hair started falling out. And then I realized I needed to really take care of my health a little bit better. But I was just like, go, 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 go. Mm -hmm. And I was on overdrive. And I see this with women all the time. And then you get out and you're so tired, you can barely make it through part of the day. Mm -hmm. You could sleep 21 hours a day, but then you have kids. So like, you can't do that. And then you're just like slogging through 19 of those 21 hours in mm-hmm, the day mm-hmm. and and you feel like collapsing you may want to eat everything in sight or you may want to not eat anything at all and then a little bit further out when you're actually feeling like hey I've hit a good place. I, I I'm actually doing okay. We've got we've got a little job going. We've or or I've got my career back on track or um my my lawyers got things handled. We're in a house of our own. My kids are in school. Everything's starting to hold steady and then you start crying at literally everything. Mm-hmm. And you're like, "What's wrong with me?" Yeah. What and first I couldn't feel anything at all. Then I got out and I, I like Got it all, like all I'm I'm juggling 13 balls, but I'm able to keep them all in the air and I've got my rhythm down. And all of a sudden they have all fallen. I can't even muster the energy to just pick one up and clean up the balls on the floor. And so my juggling skills are gone. I'm exhausted. I'm fatigued. I'm crashing out. I I can't stop sleeping. I can't stop crying. And that's because your waffle walls fell. Because you're safe enough for all the stuff that you stuffed Mm -hmm. when you were a waffle it starts cropping up because your mind knows you can't process all that stuff and survive. So when the physical safety starts to stabilize, that's when the emotional stuff very often completely falls apart. And all of a sudden you're a pancake. And all the toppings on your pancake just ran together mm-hmm. into one big puddle. And you can't seem to separate or compartmentalize anything mm-hmm. anymore. There are no boxes left. Yeah. It's all just one big puddle and it's terrifying and it's overwhelming. But once we know this, we can recognize that, hey, let's say I've been through these stages and now I'm ramping up for a trial and I start to feel numb again because it's going to be custody trial or something like that. Well, that's your body shutting down all the non-essential things so it can put all the information and all the mental energy into what you need to do to survive. And then when everything's done and it all settles down, then you fall apart again after the fact. Why? Because your brain says, hey, You're safe. You made it through. Good on you. Now let's process all the Mm -hmm. stuff you locked up and we're going to let it pour out and run into each other in one big rainbow mess. But it means you're healing, it means you're safe enough to process it because your brain has decided that it's time to pull that stuff up out of the vault Mm -hmm. and let it puddle together so that you can figure out what to do with it. So it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's just scary when you don't know what's going on.
0: That's it. And I think if we had these word pictures ahead of time, then we'd know, okay, I'm in waffle mode or I'm in pancake mode. Like I can be kind to myself because I expect this, right? But like at the, at the end of it too, I think this is a repeated process, as you mentioned. So we might ramp up and compartmentalize when certain things happen. But if Mm -hmm. we have the ability to identify that that's what's going on, then we can kind of roll with it a little more easily but i think the thing mm-hmm. for me that caught me off guard was just what you said where it was actually a couple of years where as you're gaining that mm-hmm. stability it's like okay well i feel like i'm coasting now everything's everything's good and then it was like kaboom and it was like now you're yep. ready to actually deal with all of the trauma that was underneath all this you know and so it's understanding you know we talk about layers of healing so often but i think Mm -hmm. we don't really know how long that takes. You know, we think about the layer, we think like, oh, is it just next week or next month? You know, and it's like, no, these could sometimes be years that Mm -hmm. we're going back and forth through these various stages. And it doesn't mean that life stops, but if we have compassion for ourselves and understanding that the process is meant for our good, Mm -hmm. for us to be strengthened, as you mentioned, and for us to, to move into the space that God has prepared for us and that he is inviting us into, then it's worth the ride. You know, It's worth all of that work Mm -hmm. and all of the tears and all of the difficulty because he is not allowing this for us to just be wrecked and for us to wonder whether or not we're going to make it through. He's allowing it so that we can come out of these situations so much stronger than we ever were when we went into them Mm -hmm. in the first place.
1: Yeah, and that's where the Shiro season comes in. Mm -hmm. When we come out stronger and we're able to say, hey, guess what? I learned this along the way. It might help you too. And pass that on to someone else. That's crucial. Uh, I, I really don't think God is the author of pain. I don't think he wants any of us to go through any of this. I don't think he orchestrates this like some sadist. But we live in a world that is filled with evil and sin. And pain. It isn't life with God that is hard. It's life. It's sucking air on planet Earth Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. has great challenges associated with being alive. And so, as long as we are alive, there's going to be pain. There's going to be betrayals. There's going to be heartaches, and there's going to be joys, and there's going to be victories, and there's going to be healing. And all of this mixed bag of emotions and journey is part of being human and being alive.
0: I think that's great that you mentioned that because I think when we talk about safety. Part of this is knowing, am I safe with God? Am I safe? Yes. In his hands. He was Mm -hmm. there, right. You know, and we may have those questions about why. And sometimes I think we get so stuck with the why that maybe that's even part of the, Mm -hmm. the pain in why we're not able to get forward And Mm -hmm. being able to come to terms with the fact, though, as you just said, this world is evil, that this life is what brings us trouble. God promises he will not leave us. He promises he will turn all of that for good and for our good. Mm -hmm. And that in and of itself sometimes is difficult to take that first step. But as you begin to see those little rays starting to burst through, then it's that is also Mm -hmm. that understanding, though, of. I'm on a journey with God too, of, of becoming safe with him and being Mm -hmm. held in his hands as I go through this journey. Now, something you also mentioned, Sarah, was the emotions. And this is something that I think Mm -hmm. a lot of us, especially when it comes to anger, we may wrestle with. We may not like to think of ourselves as angry people. We may feel like this is a bad emotion. We're not supposed to have it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I think anger is really important for us to really be able to count the cost of what has happened, yes. and for us to then be supercharged in our decisions for what we want for ourselves going forward, can you talk mm-hmm. about the role of emotions and maybe particularly anger in things like forgiveness?
1: Absolutely. You know, <laughs> I, I was thinking about the whole anger, and you are talking about how we we are often conditioned that anger is a bad emotion. Um. People rarely listen to women who are angry. Mm. And people often only listen to men once they get angry. And I think both approaches do a disservice to each one. Mm. Anger, though, we see lots of anger in the Bible. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And if we are looking at the heart of God as an example, we see God in absolute justifiable outrage at unjust behavior all the time. The entire book of Isaiah is outrage at injustice. Job, depression, horror, and outrage. I mean, half the Psalms are imprecatory, where it's like, God, rain down fire on their lion mm-hmm. selves, Lord. You know, I mean, there's like plenty of anger in the Bible, and it's holy, righteous, justified anger where we Tend to struggle with anger is because we've been told that being angry is bad. It's unladylike. It will lead to you being consumed with bitterness. It's not an appropriate emotion. You should be sweet. You should be kind. You should be patient. You should be. But you know what? Jesus was sweet and kind and patient and focused on healing. And when he got angry, it was because of one thing. When he saw people with power exploiting people without. And that goes back to this whole, like, you know, sometimes I saw a meme the other day. We really just like beg for a seat at tables. Jesus would have flipped Mm
0: -hmm. because
1: we want to be accepted. Now, if you saw someone torturing a pet or hurting a child, would it make you angry? yeah absolutely of course mm-hmm. and we would see that as righteous indignation but do you feel that you are worth outrage on someone's behalf when your innocence your ability to trust your uh, your safety has been stolen
0: mm-hmm.
1: Very often our sense that we could not possibly, appropriately be angry about what has been done to us is rooted in a feeling, and it's very often subconscious, that we are not worth fighting for. So outrage is healthy fuel. As long as you are apathetic about what has been done to you, what has been done against your children, it will be very hard for you to find the fuel to last through the journey. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: At some point, you have to get good and angry. There's a great book called Good and Angry. Uh, I think it's David Pallison, if I remember correctly, um, about righteous anger and indignation. There is absolutely nothing sinful about recognizing the inventory of what has been stolen from you by evil perpetrated against you. How can you ever know what you eventually might want to forgive mm-hmm. if you haven't cataloged what was done to you? Mm-hmm. Because then you're just forgiving in vague, nebulous non-terms. Like, oh, I forgive them. What do they do to you? I don't really know.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, have
1: you ever thought about it? Not really. Well, why not? I don't want to go. I don't want to go there. Well, then how do you know that you're forgiving them? Well, and that's why five years from now, and ten years from now, and twenty-five years from now, and forty-five years from now, people keep cropping up with unresolved trauma because they. One of the reasons, certainly not all the reasons, but one of the reasons is because we never gave our grief the honor, or gave our trauma the honor of sitting down with the grief, and grief and outrage are often very intermingled. As we recognize the magnitude of what abuse has stolen, there is grief and there is outrage. And I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase that what you bury, you marry. Mm. But as long as we refuse to sit with the pain, as long as we try to ignore and sidestep and play dodgeball with the grief, we run the risk of getting smacked in the face and knocked over by it because we have not sat down with it and held its hand and listened to it and processed it so it can just be released. So outrage means accepting that you were worth having been protected. And that is crucial as we move out of those dismissive, diminishing lies and into a relationship with truth. Because the truth is you are worth having been protected. It is wrong that you were not protected. It is wrong that you were exploited. God is outraged at the fact that his daughter was not protected and was exploited. God is outraged at someone taking advantage of you, using you for their pleasure, for their selfish gratification, for their evil purposes. That makes God good and angry. And it is healthy for you to be good and angry about it too. Now, we don't want to stay angry Mm -hmm. all the time. But if we never get angry, we are short-circuiting part of the healing. And we are continuing to lie to ourselves that we aren't valuable enough to have been fought for.
0: Mm -hmm. I love that you made such a great distinction there that it's important for us to get angry, but that we don't want to stay angry. And they are two very important ideas because getting angry, as you said, it's validating that we have a worth and that that was disrespected and that that was taken advantage of. But if we stay there, that anger is likely to cause us to move into spaces of stagnation, but maybe Mm -hmm. retaliation. And those are things that hurt us in, in the meantime. And where in our anger, we may be given to unrighteousness over a long period of time. In God's anger, he's given to righteousness. He's perfectly Mm -hmm. just. And that that really, the bridge between the two then is forgiveness. That we're saying in forgiveness, Mm -hmm. I'm never going to say that this was okay. I'm never going to say that by forgiving this person of what they've done, that now suddenly you know all these other things as far as trust and reconciliation and all that stuff is now on the table it mm-hmm. may it may not be and exactly. there's nothing wrong with that right but it is saying in this process of forgiving you i am not going to carry this around anymore i'm going to disconnect myself from the toxicity mm-hmm. that has been poured into my life i am choosing a new life of peace that i can't have if i stay angry at you right but as far as that I- cost That is in God's hands now. And I'm not going to concern myself with it any further, but it doesn't Mm -hmm. mean this whole idea of forgive and forget, I think is, I don't even know where this comes from, you know, but it is this sense of like, I'm going to forgive.
1: Oh, I know where it comes from. (laughs) I know where it comes from. It comes from a, a spirit, a hyper-spiritualized pathological need to, to move toward forgetting as soon as possible so Mm -hmm. that no pattern is established. And so that there is no pushback over looking at the data and the trend of behavior. If I can get you to look at it as a one-off, then I can repeat the behavior Mm -hmm. ad nauseum. And every behavior is a one-off. And if you bring it up or point out the pattern, you're the unforgiving tyrant instead of me repeating the behavior over and over again and continuing to betray your trust. So forgive and forget is one of, first of all, it's completely unbiblical. It's rubbish advice, and it is entirely intended as a weapon to allow the abuser to sin with impunity.
0: Yeah. And I think more or less, we need to think of this as I'm going to forgive and move on. I'm going to Mm -hmm. forgive and choose myself, choose my children, choose my life, choose Mm -hmm. everything that God has given me and had given me at the start. And I'm choosing that and I'm allowing the Lord to do justice on my part. And if in that mix, he decides that there's reconciliation or restoration or whatever he'll show us in good time, (laughs) but that's not always what is possible or healthy or correct.
1: Right. And, and honestly, this is something I had, I had made a note of to mention earlier, but I think now is the perfect place for it. Healthy forgiveness sometimes without reconciliation is actually honoring the other person.
0: Why?
1: Why? Because you are allowing them freedom of choice. I can choose to forgive you after I have sought safety, because safety always comes first. And after I have found stability, and after I have moved into strength, and after I have taken inventory, and after I've gotten good and angry, I can choose to forgive you. But I am no longer going to project my good conscience onto you when you don't have one. Mm -hmm. Because everyone projects. Those who are cheating, if you've been through betrayal trauma, you know that those who are cheating are very often the ones accusing the faithful partner of cheating. Hmm. You know that if someone is hiding money, they're very often assuming everyone else is trying to swindle them. Mm -hmm. If someone is pathologically lying or trying to cover up an addiction, very often they're casting darts at other people who are actually very honest. Yeah we all tend to project. The thing is we tend to assume that evil people project evil, but we don't realize that conscientious people also project Mm -hmm. our good conscience on others. Mm -hmm. So if you have ever stood in the mirror and said, wow, that crazy case we heard about on the news, how can that guy even sleep at night? You're projecting your good conscience on him and he clearly does not have the same burden of a healthy conscience mm-hmm. that you do. Yeah. So, when we allow someone, when we forgive them from that place of strength, but then we allow them to walk away. We allow them to go ahead and do what they're choosing to do. We recognize that they are they have the right to make horrible choices. It's not my job to make everyone else make good choices. If they want to choose to be abusive, me believing in free will and respecting their choice is going to say, okay, if that's what you choose, that's your choice. I choose not to be around it, Mm -hmm. but I can't choose to change you. I can't make you want to be a decent human. Mm -hmm. So that forgiveness and then being willing to just move on is truly respecting and honoring their free will before God mm. and God will take care of the consequences. Yeah. But it, often we don't think about it as actually honoring them in free will.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think if, as we tie this all together, as we've been talking about truth, it's the only way they are able to experience truth. And if they choose to yep. deny it, at least we get to walk in truth. And for us, truth, as you have so wonderfully put is a way that we can experience what it is to live in love, to live in power Mm -hmm. and to live with a clear mind. That's so well said, Sarah. I'm so appreciative of all of your insights in this conversation. At the end of every conversation, I ask each guest the same question. And it is, if there was just one thing that you'd want a single mom to know, what would it be?
1: I thought about this and I wrote down like four different things. I'm like, but she only wants one. I just don't know what to choose. <laughs> it's a common think, problem <laughs> though. Yeah, I'm sure. I think though, if there was one thing I could tell you as a single mom, it is that if you have chosen safety, you have followed God's heart because God does not want his daughters living in fear and without a sound mind and powerless. So in choosing safety, you are representing the heart of God to your children. And that gives your children the chance to be part of breaking those cycles, whatever they were. And that is a good and holy thing.
0: That is so powerful. Thank you, Sarah. Would you tell listeners about your resources and how they can follow along? Yes.
1: I'd love to. So I'm the founder of Wilderness to Wild. And Wild, as we affectionately call it, is specifically for working with women who've been wounded by toxic relationships in the faith community. And a huge number of our audience is trauma mamas. And so we provide online courses that are self-paced. We provide individual coaching for clarity and recovery. We provide a lot of amazing community groups. We have weekly devotionals, monthly podcasts, and we are working on some incredible support resources for trauma mamas that are rolling out um, and will be available by the time this is aired. Awesome. So I'm very excited about that, but I can't say a whole lot yet. So definitely, if you're listening to this, come check out our website because all of those resources are available there. We have one of the largest giveaway free resource libraries that um, I've seen in any advocacy or support site. So you can follow us at wilderness to wildcom wwwwilderness to three words, altogether.com. .com. We have really snarky but inspirational merch, like uh, spoofs on Jael and um, women in the Bible that did heroic things. And uh, we love some of those. Uh, I'm also on Facebook at Sarah McDougall author and on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. We have over 300 videos talking about systems of abuse and other things, ways to talk to your kids about abuse um, at Sarah McDougall On all of those platforms. I would love to get to know you. And if there's anything that we have in our resources that would help you in your journey to healing, that's why we're here.
0: Awesome. And I will include links in the show notes so that listeners can locate you very easily. But thank you so much for joining me today, Sarah. Thanks, Michelle. If you found this conversation helpful, I've got a couple of others that I would recommend for you. The first is Episode 92, Parenting with an Abuser, Strategies for Parallel Parenting and Helping Your Children Cope with Joy Forest. Also check out Episode 69, How to Stop Being Manipulated and Help Your Kids Avoid It Too with Tim Sanford. We'd love to invite you to get involved with the Plus One Parents community. You can join us on Facebook or Instagram at plus1.parents. And on Facebook, you can join our private Facebook group, Beloved Collective. Also, at PlusOneParents.org, we are constantly adding new resources related to all of the topics that we cover here on the Christian Single Moms podcast. That's everything from parenting to dating to spiritual and emotional well-being. If you'd like to stay up to date on the new resources as we release them, you can join our mailing list there as well at PlusOneParents.org. I'm so grateful that you're a part of this community and that you were able to join me for this episode today. I pray always that you would know that you are seen and you are beloved.